The name M. Scott Peck may still be familiar to some of you. He's best known for his 1978 book, The Road Less Traveled. But later in his life, he began to speak and indeed devote his life to what he called true community. This was for him a much more challenging and yet also more rewarding form of human relationship than what he called pseudo-community, which is what most of us think of as community, I suspect, but which requires not much more of us than politeness, and thus the avoidance of difficult conversations. He wrote about it in his 1987 book, The Different Drum, which he opened with this ancient teaching story called The Rabbi's Gift. I'm sure that some of you know it. There was once a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order, it had lost all its branch houses and now had only the decaying mother house and only five monks in it, the abbot and four others, all over 70 years of age. Clearly, it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby village occasionally used for a hermitage. The old monks could always sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. The rabbi is in the woods, the rabbi is in the woods, they would whisper. As he agonized over the imminent death of his order, the old abbot thought at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he had some word of wisdom that could save his dying order. The rabbi welcomed the old abbot at his hut, but when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, he could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi read Torah together and wept, quietly spoke of deep things, The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said, but isn't there some word of wisdom you could leave me with that would help me to save my dying monastery? No, I don't have any, the rabbi said. There is only one thing. The Messiah is one of you. The old abbot had no idea what he meant, but he went back to his monastery. The fellow monks gathered around him to ask, well, what did he say? What did he say? He didn't have anything to say, the old abbot said. The only thing he said was was something cryptic. The Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. And so we just wept and read Torah together. Now, in the days that followed, the old monks pondered the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could, it, could he possibly have meant one of us monks here in the monastery? He probably meant Father Abbot. He has been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly, Brother Thomas is a holy man, 
Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly, he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, although he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right. (laughs) Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred. Certainly not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, he's a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, he couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did. Oh God, I couldn't mean that much to you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect. On the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah, and on the off-off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Now, because the forest in which it was situated was so beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to picnic on its grounds, to wander along some of its paths, even now and then to go into the dilapidated chapel to pray. As they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling, about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends, and their friends brought their friends. Then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with some of the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them, and then another, and another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. A little more than 20 years ago, on a Friday night, I found myself seated in a circle at a retreat center in Ontario with more than 50 other people, all in one big room in a circle. We were about to begin a weekend retreat, a weekend experience of community building. To begin our time together, the leader read the story of the Rabbi's Gift from Scott Peck's book. Then he offered just two guidelines for the weekend. The first was, speak only when the spirit moves. And the second was, don't fail to speak when the spirit does move. And there was a third implicit guideline, perhaps unnecessary because we were all there for the weekend, which was, don't give up on the group. Don't leave. Now, I was there out of curiosity. I was in seminary at the time and had been moved by Peck's book. 
I wanted to learn more about this thing he called community. I'd had a taste of it, but I questioned his assertion that it was possible not only in small groups, but in groups of any size, limited only by the size of the room. I learned that he had set up what he called a foundation for community encouragement. He would train leaders for workshops across the country. I looked up the nearest one and set off to see for myself. It was eye-opening. We were all total strangers. We parted two days later having found that across all our differences and despite or maybe because of having to navigate serious conflict over those differences, we had learned to trust each other. Listening to each other's very different stories allowed us to begin to see each other as fellow human beings. Our differences no longer mattered. We came through the chaos of accusation and judgment and began to let go of our assurance that we knew what was best for each other. We could fix each other. Slowly it became for us a safe place where we didn't have to pretend, didn't have to be afraid, didn't have to keep up an appearance that we were in control and in charge of our lives. We came to feel accepted for who we were, to feel known, deeply known. It was a profoundly moving experience, one which has shaped my ministry in the years since then. But it was not easy, and it was not painless. I quickly learned why, between every two chairs in our circle, there was a jumbo box of tissues for the tears flowed freely from everyone, tears of joy, tears of sadness. This weekend experience of community was the first spark that ignited today's sermon, inspired it at least. The second was a story I came across years ago in a book by Kathleen Norris, the poet and writer who makes her home in South Dakota, where she has become a frequent visitor to the Benedictine monasteries scattered across the high plains. The book was Amazing Grace, a Vocabulary of Faith, in which she reflects on those traditional religious words that she and we so often struggle with. She begins her section on heaven by recalling a nun who told her that once trying to assure her dying mother about what would come, she told her that in heaven all the people you love will be there. And her mother said, no. In heaven, I will learn to love all the people who are there. That story has stayed with me over the years. We don't have to think of heaven as a place where we're rewarded with golden streets and choruses of angels for our virtuous lives on earth. We can think of it as a place where we challenge ourselves to lead that virtuous life and learn. And if heaven after we die is about learning, then surely we have the opportunity to prepare for it in this life as we practice creating it here on earth. These stories resonated with my already widening understanding of church. As I made the journey into ministry, I began to see that it's not just a place 
where we challenge the intellect with new perspectives and ideas. It's also a place where we challenge the spirit as we invite ourselves to growth and change in our ability to love. I began to realize that the church is not just about changing the world, but it might be about changing me. I began to think of it as a school for living, or if you will, a school for loving. Now all these perspectives began to come together, growing in the ways of love, building community, understanding heaven as our vision of the loving world we long for here on earth. Together, these insights added up to reshaping my idea of the church and all our relationships, seeing it now as creating here on earth a little piece of heaven. That was Mike's challenge, I think, after his best friend Corky died, and it's ours as well in all the relationships of our lives. So now I want to ask, what better place to try building a little piece of heaven than in this lovely chapel here in this beautiful field here on Gleadsville Road. I'm not suggesting that we try to replicate a Scott Peck community building weekend with an entire church. After all, we're never all in one place at one time and certainly not for a weekend. And happily, we're not a closed group. Our doors are always open for newcomers. So building our little piece of heaven will be an ongoing task for as long as we are here. But what I hope we can do is come to understand Peck's true community, as he calls it, the story of the rabbi's gift and indeed the story of Mike and Corky, as picturing the kind of intimate relationships, the kind of heaven we long for. I hope that we can create here a culture which fosters in us the spiritual growth, and the relational skills that will enable such relationships. As we get better at our relationships, I think we'll also get better at our mission of embracing diversity and nurturing spirituality and promoting justice in the world. More and more, we'll realize that we truly belong to each other. Now, it's fair to say, I think, that over its 20-some years of existence, UUCL has made a pretty good beginning. And in the short time I've been here, I've seen us get along pretty well. We're polite and friendly. We're kind. We're caring. And in this spirit, we get things done smoothly, without fireworks, good energy, most of the time. In spite of some bruising exceptions, I've often thought of it as community. But Peck would say we owe ourselves more than that. Deep down, he thinks we long for more. It's just that because we haven't experienced it, we didn't realize it was possible to have deeper community. So we haven't really tried. And maybe in some ways we've been afraid to try. It can be scary. So what's really the difference between what we have and what we could have? I don't think it will surprise us. It begins with living up to the very kinds of things we've come to associate with a small group experience. The kinds of things we sometimes lift up, in fact, in what we call covenants that describe how we want to be with each other in the life of the church. I'd be willing to bet 
that when we're done, we'll have promised ourselves some of these standard guidelines, for the board is about to initiate a process encouraging us to develop a covenant in the year ahead. We put these things into our covenants, however, to remind us, because although we may realize they're standard for small group experiences, they're not necessarily standard in our lives. Life outside the church does not always follow these guidelines. But if we have them in covenants, they will not only remind us, but we can point to the covenant. Isn't this how we want to be when something goes wrong? Your governing board then will challenge us to develop a covenant that goes beyond that beautiful one we recited this morning and recite every Sunday. That lovely vision of what we might, that lovely vision of what we, what this church could be. But the covenant would be a much more specific vision of what it would feel like if we actually achieved that sort of vision. Often these lists of what I've called small group behaviors begin with just showing up. Just showing up. That really is the first step in being part of a community. Showing up, being accountable, being able to be counted on, and at least letting others know when we can't show up. They continue with treating each other with respect, not putting anyone down. Think of the old monks. They ask us to listen with our full attention, not talking over each other or ignoring the other, and sometimes even allowing some silence or reflection or questions to be sure we really understood what someone has said. Another guideline might be speaking not in abstract generalizations, but so as to argue a point, but speaking in I statements as we share our life experience and our feelings. Themes like this are part of most church covenants I've seen. You'll find some of them already in the covenant of your governing board. And some of our committees have covenants. They're pretty easy to come up with, but they're always a little beyond our reach, as they probably should be. They demand not just goodwill, but considerable self-knowledge and spiritual growth to actually live up to them. They're spiritual because they are about deepening our relationships. They're about growth because spirituality is not just about finding our bliss. It's about the day-to-day challenge of of getting better, being better people, and change. Living into the promises we make to each other in our covenant is the work of a lifetime. Yet true community invites us to go even further. It challenges us to become aware of our prejudgments and our fixed ideas and how they can get in the way of relationship. It challenges us then to let go of them even harder. It asks us to accept that difference and conflict are okay. It asks us instead to learn from them. It's these challenges that explain why I think of the church as a school for living, a lifelong course of study. Now, I'm not going to say much about the stages that Peck's weekend groups go through on the way to true community and the obstacles they may experience. 
He describes them at length in his book, and it's fascinating. Instead, I want to suggest some changes in the culture of our church, which we'll face if we want to build that little piece of heaven here on Gleesville Road. The first for me is the challenge that I think all of us face in our culture, the challenge of individualism. Especially, we find it in the Unitarian strand of our tradition. The challenge is learning to balance our individualism with attention to our needs as a community. Too easily, we think of our relationship with the church as more about getting than giving, more about satisfying our individual desires than making a serious commitment to spiritual growth and change. A natural consequence of this individualism is our tendency to think of ourselves as separate from the church. So the church becomes about us and them. How often have we heard that? If the going gets hard, then it must be the church's failure, their failure. This can encourage us, or at least give us permission to withdraw, rather than to hang in there and seize the opportunity for spiritual growth and change and community building. Now, with all respect to Emerson, at the heart of our religious tradition is not individualism, but the concept of covenant. Joining the church for us is not about submitting ourselves to institutional authority, but committing ourselves to walk together in the ways of love. That's the historic covenant of the free church. The church is not them. The church is us. Our spiritual challenge is to deepen our ongoing relationship with each other as companions on the journey of life. All this means balancing our individualism with community. Our second and related challenge is to recognize that in the church, thanks to our covenant, we don't relate to each other at arm's length. When we have to resort to Robert's rules, it means we've already fallen short of our covenant to walk together in the spirit of love. Roberts offers rules for debate and voting, but it doesn't say anything about deepening our relationships. To say this is to acknowledge that our interactions in the church are not about convincing each other to see things our way. They're not about vindication and votes, but about building consensus as we search for common ground. If we're going to build that little piece of heaven, we need to see each other not as objects, but as subjects to relate to each other in that I-thou relationship that the Jewish theologian Martin Buber has made familiar to most of us. In building relationships and seeking common ground, then we come to our third big challenge. That is, and perhaps hardest, that's to accept that it is okay to be different and okay to talk about our differences, even to celebrate them. Conflict is inevitable because we are all different. Our challenge is to accept the discomfort that goes with that, and yet also the satisfaction of dealing with conflict openly in a spirit of respect and love and not running away from it when the going gets rough. Now, you might think that our proud UU embrace of diversity would make this easy, make this a non-problem for us, but if you, like me, grew up in a family system that left you with a pervasive fear that 
if anger were to bubble up, the conflict were to come out of the open, that could destroy the whole family, you will appreciate how difficult it is and how scary to learn to embrace conflict, to learn that we can deal with it openly and still be a community. In fact, it may be the only way to learn to be a community. We realize that it can be both eye-opening and liberating. My list of transformative challenges includes one more big one, a threshold challenge for those of us whose personalities may include a little bitty streak of skepticism. There, there are UUs like that, I think. They certainly include me. I call it the challenge of assuming good intentions. I've spoken about it before. Is trust something that we can learn? Sometimes it pops up in indignant emails, this skepticism, or in complaining about others when they're not there. So often, deeper listening would have revealed that no hostile intent, no disrespect was intended. It seems like I encounter this every week, somewhere. Trust can be risky. Building it takes practice, if need be, in small and incremental stages. But as we find the courage to try it and keep at it, the rewards can be immense. What greater gift can a church make to us than to help us learn to trust each other and deal openly with our differences? All these challenges invite us to change, and change can be scary for ourselves and for the church. It may ask us to face our own inner selves, let go of old ways of seeing and thinking, to look at life through fresh eyes. So it's critical to remember, when it feels a little scary, that we do not do it alone. We walk together in learning the ways of love. Truly, our little piece of heaven will always be beyond our reach, as any heaven should be. But as we walk together in the ways of love, we and all who come through our doors, or our one door, will realize that here in this lovely little country chapel, in this home to our dreams, we are building it one day at a time for all of us to share and to take out into the world wherever we go. May it be so. Amen.